This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning again. We are, I know it's a broken record, in the season of Advent. Uh, if you can't tell with the candles and everything we're doing differently, and t- it's talking about the expectation that we have of Jesus in His second coming. We also try to spend the, our sermon series exploring some of these same themes. And today we're going to be in Luke chapter 1. And as we explore this idea of waiting, you know, we, I just had this experience where uh, my four-year-old son, Joaquin, that he made those like chains, paper chains that you link together and like count down the days to Christmas. You know what I'm talking about? You guys ever do those? And the thing about being a four-year-old and waiting is that waiting is exceptionally difficult for a four-year-old. But it's really no different for us as adults. It's hard to wait. And I think one of the reasons that it's hard to wait is because it is built into an act of submission. Like Joaquin has to wait uh, for me to tell him when it's okay to do something, right? He has to wait for the days to come. He's, He's dependent, kind of subjected to time. And then we have to wait, whether it's on airlines or uh, people to drive us around or rides, uh, trusting that other people will remember you, maybe even the midst of great delays. And in general, we don't like the idea of submission, right? We think it's a demeaning word and it's distinctly un-American, but the Bible doesn't necessarily share this view about submission. Now, it defines it in a particular way, but it says that we ought to submit our entire lives to the Lord. And it gives us a reason for doing this. It says you ought to submit your entire lives to the Lord because His promises for you are so good. But Jesus walked on this earth 2,000 years ago. It's been a long time since these promises were made. And frankly, as the time passes by and we have to wait and wait and wait, we find it more and more difficult to see the goodness of the promises. And as time goes by and we have to wait and wait and wait, we find it increasingly difficult to subject our lives to God's Word. But complete submission of our lives to His Word is what the Lord requires. And I actually, I think most Christians that I talk to want this. Most of you guys that I've talked to express desires of wanting to study His Word more faithfully, um, bring your your life into greater alignment uh, with His Word. But where the Spirit is willing, the flesh is often weak. We lack the motivation to submit our lives fully to God's Word. Are these promises really as good as He says they are? Today we're going to read a story about a young woman who submits herself to God's Word despite it having drastic implications in her life. And she's able to do this because she really does believe that these promises are that good, but not just believe it. She gets to taste it. You know, Mary would only see the beginning of these promises fulfilled. We're going to read about Mary's, the annunciation to Mary that she's going to be with child. She'd only be able to see the beginning of these promises fulfilled in her life. And even this small taste would cause her to submit her life in almost perfect obedience. It's astonishing her response in the face of what is announced to her, that she is going to be with child before she is married, that this child will be the king everlasting. And she says, let it be done to me as the Lord commands. I hope that in reading the story that we will renew our vision for what these promises are, but not only renew our belief in these promises, but also come to taste them anew, to see how they play out into our lives and find renewed motivation to submit the entirety of our lives to God's word. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's word. 
which comes from Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at this saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I'm the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And we are to subject our lives to it. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. To submit our entire lives to the Word of God, we need to understand just how good these promises are to us. Now, I want to start with this question. Um, what was the main reason that you submitted your life to Christ in the first place? And, and I recognize I don't know all of you in here. And so maybe you would say, well, I haven't submitted my life to Christ. And I, 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 can, I can recognize that, but I want you to hear that in this passage, Mary, as a Jewish woman, uh, was already somebody that was in expectant waiting of God's promises to be fulfilled. And so we're kind of approaching it from that lens as well. Christians who are waiting for these promises to be fulfilled, but have waited so long that the promises feel a little fuzzy, right? So what was the main reason that caused you to originally submit your life to Christ. We might all have slightly different stories, but I think one main theme that shows up over and over again is that we wanted to please God. We wanted to find His favor. We read the story and we said, if this God really is this good, I want Him to know that I'm on His side, that I'm for Him, that He provides me the salvation and I want it. Can I have it? Now, there's uh, another analogy that I think we all experience, um, at least somewhat, because uh, recently I had this experience with Joaquin. Uh, I asked him if he wanted to make breakfast in bed for Margarita. Now, when I told him this, he said, no, I don't want to do that. I don't think he understood exactly what I was saying. I think he maybe thought to make breakfast in the bed, not just take it to her in bed. Um, but either way, I kind of forced him through the pancake making and egg process, right? And he wasn't really understanding. He just wanted his pancakes. Uh, but when we finally got to the moment where we delivered breakfast in bed, um, Joaquin got to experience something powerful. And that was the delight of his mother, right? And he got to see in this small act, uh, the delight of his mother poured over him. And in some sense, I did too as the husband that helped manufacture it all, you know. <laughs> But you know, Margarita, my wife, uh, her pleasure was not necessarily in the food. We're not Michelin star chefs. It wasn't in the presentation. It was actually quite sloppy, if I remember correctly. Syrup spilled everywhere, uh, and then there was laundry to do. Um, Margarita was pleased in Joaquin himself. And what mattered to both Joaquin and I was this experience of Margarita's pleasure in and through this small act. Now, what sometimes happens uh, when we experience things like this 
is that we come to believe that we earned that delight and that favor through this small act. But we all understand that in the healthiest relationships, Joaquin doesn't earn Margarita's favor. Joaquin already has Margarita's favor because he's Margarita's son. Now, of course, we don't always have the healthiest relationships here and now. Even with good parents, they're, uh, not, at, they're not perfect. And so sometimes we come away with this feeling that we do have to merit people's favor. And in some sense, outside of our family lives, there's truth to that. We don't interact with everybody on the street the same way. Uh, we wait until some aspect of favor is shown and we connect with them in a peculiar way. But this is not how people feel in the family of God. You don't have to prove that you deserve his favor. And we see this profoundly in Mary's story. See, Mary, at this point in her life, has done almost nothing of significance. We know nothing about her. She's not married. She has no children. She's not left her father's house. She's an extremely common woman of almost no means. She's probably expecting that, um, and hoping that she can please the Lord with her life, when, but she would probably admit that her life hasn't quite yet started. She's like, I'm about to get married. I'm about to leave my father's house. I'm about to do all these things that the Lord might find favor in. But before she'd even done anything of repute, anything that mattered really, an angel appears and announces, declares that she has the favor of the Lord. And she doesn't just hear this once, she hears it twice. The greeting in verse 28, greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. In verse 30, do not be afraid, you have God's favor. Mary didn't have to earn God's favor. Mary received a declaration that she is the recipient of God's unmerited favor. And this is how God works. It's how he's always worked. Abraham didn't merit God's favor. He received a declaration of God's unmerited favor. Israel wasn't chosen because it was the strongest nation or the richest, but because of God's unmerited favor. David wasn't chosen because he was the biggest or oldest of his brothers, but because of unmerited favor of the Lord. One of the most powerful motivations for us to submit our lives to the law of God is understanding that we have his unmerited favor. And I think this impacts our lives in primarily two ways, because we don't have an angel telling us the same way that angel, uh, Mary does, right? We don't have an angel showing up in our lives and being like, you are favored by the Lord. We get to hear it here. But what the promise says here is so good, because the greatest way that we experience God's unmerited favor, according to Scripture, is Jesus' death on our behalf. And let me just explain this out a little further. Because in His forgiveness of our sins, we are forgiven of our past sins, but also of our future sins. And that is unbelievable motivation for serving the Lord with our entire lives. We no longer have to believe that those things that we've done in our past have relegated us to some second-tier status of God's favor. We have his full, unmerited favor in Jesus Christ. There is forgiveness for whatever is past. May, there may be consequences. We saw this in David's life. If you remember, we just preached through First and Second Samuel. We saw in David's life consequences for his sin. But we have the full, unmerited favor forgiveness in his name. But even as we look forward and we say, this is such a big job to submit my life to his word. How could I possibly do it all? I barely know what's in the Bible, right? But Jesus also forgives you from all your future failures. 
so that you're liberated from not having to live a perfect life to merit favor from God constantly. Like once you were saved, all of a sudden you had to prove it. No, you still exist under the, the um, unmerited favor of God. You are free at every opportunity to repent of your sin and turn back and cling to the promises of God. Mary heard God's unmerited favor declared by an angel, and we hear it declared in the gospel, and it is no less true for us than it was for her. And we'll be unable to fully submit ourselves to God's word if we're not fully resting on this truth, because otherwise we're going to try to earn it. And I got to tell you, the Bible is full of stories of people trying to earn God's favor. And the story of the Bible over and over and over again is you cannot do it. You need his unmerited favor found in Jesus Christ. But you might say, okay, I have God's unmerited favor, uh, but pastor, do you know about my life? Because it doesn't seem like I have a lot of God's favor. My story actually seems pretty awful. And if I have God's unmerited favor, then God's unmerited favor isn't all that great. Have you ever asked where God's favor might be in your story? And sometimes, some of you might be in a place right now uh, where you can say, like, actually, yes, (laughs) I do see God's favor in my life. And sometimes we get those joys, right? But for many of us, we probably experience days, weeks, months, years, and even decades of thinking, where is God in this story? Mary, I'm sure, had a particular vision for her life. She wanted her story to unfold in a particular way, a quiet life with a man who loved her. But God, as the author of her story, had different goals. She was going to have a scandalous life, a child out of wedlock with questions and whispers, maybe even from family and friends in her town that she grew up in, shame and embarrassment. Although you have God's unmerited favor, God writes unconventional stories. God is the author of Mary's story, and he tells her what's going to unfold, and she kind of recognizes that, and she only asks one question, which I think if any of us were put in her shoes, we would have a lot more questions. Um, Now, she asks a really good question uh, that gets at the heart of what we're wondering. We're like, wait a second, how how, how is this going to happen? And we kind of want to ask ourselves, why, why why did Mary ask this question in this way? She asks, how will this be because I'm a virgin, right? Well, she's asking this question because maybe she's assuming that she misheard the angel. Like, she's hearing the declaration. She's like, you're going to be with child. And she's like, wow, this is great. Um, this is going to be my first child with Joseph, right? Like, like, after the wedding, you know, when things are all good. Like, that's what God says, you know, is, is good. But the angel restates the facts that it would decidedly not be Joseph's child. That she would be living in an unconventional story that God was authoring. And although she was about to face um, this radical, life-altering change in her life, you got to think, she was planning for a wedding. It says she was betrothed, and usually there was this year-long process of being betrothed where the husband um, had already paid the bride price, but he would go and prepare, build a house, or save up money for their lives together, and the, and the bride would also prepare. And then a year or so goes by, uh, and then they throw this big wedding that lasted several days, right? Um, she's preparing for this day. She's not preparing for a baby, God's unconventional story is going to bring her further and further into humility. But Mary could look at that story, that direction down into humility, and actually see a very familiar pattern inside of an unconventional story. You see, in God's unconventional story, there's only one main character, and that's Jesus. 
Just be clear about that. The Bible is one main character. It's about Jesus. And people are characters in the story too, but we either continue to be dead in our trespasses and sins, or we become alive by living into the pattern of the main character. The Bible says that we live Christ-like lives. We take up our cross and we follow Him. We actually follow in the footsteps of Jesus Christ. So the people who are alive are actually following a familiar pattern. But the pattern of Jesus wasn't the pattern that we like. To go up, you've got to go down. To come to new life, there's got to be death. Mary, who was a nobody, was about to be humbled even further. But this was a familiar pattern to Mary. She could recognize it. And we actually learned that we recognize this a little bit after our passage. If you were to keep reading, uh, Mary sings this song. We call it the Magnificat. And in the Magnificat, she announces this familiar pattern that she sees. And the familiar pattern is that God tears down the proud and exalts the humble. So she could say, even in this moment, although I am facing unbelievable circumstances in my life, I will face suffering. This is a Christ-like pattern. God will not fail to exalt the humble. She would sing about God's goodness in the midst of her suffering. And I just, I, I want to pause here for a second. You know, we, given kind of historical data that we have, we think that Mary was probably an older teenager. That was, that was a very common age to be being married off, you know. Um, maybe, you know, as young as 16 or 15, but probably closer to 18. Um, she's, she's leaving uh, her life to go live with Joseph, who's an older man. Um, she's just told in this betrothal period uh, that she's going to have a child, which to the outside world, everybody's going to be like, yeah, sure, the Holy Spirit, we got it. Um, but they're going to make assumptions about uh, her behavior and her life. Joseph even had agreed to divorce her quietly until an angel also comes to him and tells him not to. The beginning of her marriage was not going to start like she thought it was going to. Her story was going to feel a lot like dying. And yet in the middle of all this, this maybe like 17, 18-year-old girl is walking to go visit her cousin and composes a song about God's goodness. Like in the midst of her suffering, in the midst of facing all of the unknowns and maybe not have shared it with a whole lot of people, right, she sits down and she goes through her biblical memory and she goes, this is what God does. He humbles us so that he might exalt us. And there's a powerful message here for us. God, the author of your story, will humble you. He knows exactly the measures necessary to push you into that familial, that familiar pattern of humility, characteristic of his characters in his unconventional story. He knows the relationship failures. He knows the business downturns. He knows the job that you need fired from. He knows the humdrum of changing diapers or dead-end jobs. He knows your suffering, and God wrote it into your story. God is here to humble you. But the Bible's defin definition of humility is not shame. I want to be very clear on that. Because the way our culture wants to talk about humility is shameful. As if to be humble is to be ashamed of who you are or what, you're do, what you do. But that's not how the Bible talks about humility. While Mary's culture would, without a doubt, shame her, she would not experience shame from God. Because as Mary sings, it is the humble who the Lord exalts. Christ, of course, is the best example of this. The king of kings born in a stable. The only man who should have ever worn a crown ever. The only one who's actually deserved it. <laughs> the rest have received unmerited favor. All the other presidents and kings throughout history, unmerited favor, right? Um, but he deserved it. Wore a crown of thorns. 
Sure, he wore a purple robe, but was punched, beaten, crucified. He lowered himself further in humility because he knew the same thing that his mother did, that God the Father exalts the humble and tears down the proud. God's story for Mary's life, God's story for Jesus' life, and God's, God's story for your life is to take you into further humility than you've ever been. He's going to take you towards what feels like death. For Mary, I'm sure that what she was facing was going to feel like death in her culture, but not just during that nine months. Just think about the rest of Mary's life. I'm sure watching her son crucified felt like dying. I'm sure that burying her son felt like dying. I've talked to people who have buried children, and they describe it as it feeling like dying. Christ said that if you followed him, you would take up your cross as you do so. I don't know what you think that means, but crucifixion is death. The way to submit in the face of unbelievable suffering in what feels like dying is to see ourselves as characters in a bigger story, an unconventional story that has a familiar pattern of dying and resurrecting a new life, where death leads to life and humility leads to exaltation. If you're a character in God's unconventional story, I just want to make a couple of things clear, though, because I feel like we're, you know, kind of up here in storyland. Um, but, like, what does this really mean for you? It means that in the middle of your suffering, God always sees you. He wrote it there. In the middle of when you are humbled, when you are at rock bottom in the face of your own sin, you still have his unmerited favor. Even there, he is with you. God is never surprised. He's not surprised of what you faced this year that you thought you would never experience. He's not surprised of what you're going to face next year that you have no idea about. When you suffer, you are not outside of a story. When you are humbled, you are not outside of a story. And even in those very moments, that is God writing you into his unconventional story by causing you to live in a very familiar pattern. Again, we might say like, okay, pastor, I get it. <laughs> like, the, the humble life is the Christian life. I understand. But let's be honest, we're, we're announcing these, these truths about Scripture that we don't actually see come true in our life, right? You say that the humble are exalted, but honestly, I've never seen it. Nice guys seem to always finish last, actually. And I wonder what Mary thought, not just through the next nine months, but for, through the whole 30 years uh, before Jesus started his public ministry, right? about whether or not these promises were actually going to come true. Because for the first 30 years of Jesus' life, it was regularity. It wasn't these grand promises that she was experiencing every day. When Jesus was four, when he was 12, there were hints here and there, but the rest of it was just regular humdrum life. Jesus, born into poverty, learning the family trade with no chances of becoming a king. She needed something tangible. She needed the sign. Don't we want a sign? <laughs> we want a sign in our lives. God, show me a sign that these things are true. I just want to know. I can endure all of this suffering if you were to just give me a sign. Well, God gives Mary a sign. In verse 36, it says that Mary's cousin Elizabeth, after a life of barrenness in her old age, would also bear a son. The Bible has lots of stories about God bringing life where there was barrenness. Um, I, we just finished our sermon series on First and Second Samuel, and First Samuel opens, if you'll remember, and you we're here with us, of a story of a woman named Hannah who was barren and prayed to God, and she was given a child. 
The Bible highlights these stories again and, and again because God is the God who brings life out of barren places. He brings life out of places where there is no possibility of life. Mary is not only going to taste this reality in her own life, because humanly speaking, there's no way for her to have life inside of her womb, and God is going to put it there anyway, but also she's going to have a sign that her cousin, who is in her old age, long past childbearing years, and who had been barren her entire childbearing years, she is going to be with child six months along. Go and see the sign. Know that it is true. Mary was supposed to look for life where previously there had only been death. And I think after 2,000 years of waiting, as we get kind of uh, the promises fade a little bit and we wonder about like God's unfolding story in our lives and we say, well, it might be great that God is aligning my story with Christ's suffering, um, but is he still writing this story or is he like falling asleep or just kind of tossed it to the side and be like, I'll come back to it later? 2,000 years. Just like Mary, we're supposed to look for life where there was only death. Jesus and Paul will describe this in a particular way, and they'll talk about looking for fruit. There's this fascinating story where Jesus is walking with his disciples, and he passes by a tree. And the tree has all the signs of life. It's got all these leaves, uh, and it's a fig tree. And he walks up to it, and he says, well, there should be fruit here. And he's looking around, and there's no figs. And so he curses the tree. And they pass by the tree the next day, and it's withered to its root. And the disciples ask him about it, and they're like, what? I mean, what is this supposed to mean? This seems kind of like an out-of-character thing for you to do. And Jesus says, so it will be for people who do not bear fruit in their own lives. The master will come and chop down the tree. It has all the appearance of life, but it's not bearing the fruit that it was supposed to. Now, Paul's going to talk about this fruit too. He talks about it as the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians. And I know, I feel like I talk about the fruit of the Spirit a lot if you, um, as, as like a, uh, an application point if you've been with us for a while. But I think that's because for me, it's so simple and yet so profound when Christians bear the fruits of the Spirit really and truly, it is a small sign of resurrection life, of God bringing life into the world where there was only death. You know the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Where once there was only love of self, there is now true biblical self-sacrificial love. Where once there was only discontentment, there is now joy. Where once there was a brawler, there is now a peacemaker. When once there was an efficient maximizing of our days, there's someone who can experience patience. Where once there was two-faced niceness, there's now genuine kindness and goodness. Where once there was unfaithfulness, there's now faithfulness. Where once there was arrogant self-promotion, now there is gentle humility. Where once there was rampant hedonism, there is now self-control and generosity. When these things truly manifest, it is a sign of true life. When these things are not present, even if the tree appears to be healthy, it is a sign of death. And Christians, that should scare us. We are not perfect. <laughs> we do not bear the fruit that we ought to bear. We do not bear as much fruit in our lives as Jesus. We are not Jesus. And I think too often we are content with external Christian morality, the signs of life with no actual fruit. We ought to look at our lives and see life where there was only death. We ought to look at each other's life and see life where there was only death. Not because we're afraid of the judgment that will come per se, although that is a truth, but for purposes of our sermon today, because tasting that fruit is tasting the promises fulfilled in your life. When the fruits of the Spirit manifest themselves in your lives and others around you, you're able to shout, there it is. There's life where there was death. There's the kingdom of God in breaking here and now. He's not asleep. 
He remembers us. Life is breaking in. And one practical way to look at this, when you look at, back at 2022, at the end of the year, was it successful for you, and how did you evaluate it? Was it the events that took place, the money that you made, the relationships that you developed or let go? Because I've got to be honest with you, those are just the appearance of life. Was any consideration given to the growth of the fruits of the Spirit? Was just consideration given to the leaves? What about your goals for next year? As you look into next year, are you busy planning your next vacation, your next investment portfolio, the next school choice for your kids? Or are you asking the Spirit how He will be growing the fruits of His Spirit in your life so that you might taste His promises, so that you might, might, might be more assured that His promises are for you, so that you might be more willing to subject your life to the Lordship of Christ? Will you ask the Spirit to grow love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control in 2023? I think we're often complacent with seeing the signs of life and just leaves, and we don't bother looking for true spiritual fruit. And if we're content with external Christian morality, then we'll have very little motivation to submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ, because it just won't taste that good. Mary was submissive to God's Word because she tasted the beginning of the fulfillment of these promises. And they came in the arrival of the long-awaited king, which happened to be her son. And with her, we taste those same fulfillments. We taste God's unmerited favor because Jesus came to redeem us. His favor, his delight, his love of us drove him into humility to rescue us. Unmerited favor. And we know that even in the midst of our sufferings that we are united to his unconventional story because it's a familiar, familiar pattern. We look at Jesus himself and we go, okay, my life is being united to his I know that I will experience resurrection. And we look for the signs of it here and now to taste the fruit upon our lips, the fruits of the Spirit, that He has not forgotten or fallen asleep, that He brings life where previously there was only death. Ultimately, the motivation for us to submit our lives to the Lordship of Christ is seeing the goodness of Jesus Himself, His unmerited favor, His unbelievable story, and the life that He pours out upon us. And he doesn't say that it is just a future thing. He says that we can already experience little pieces of it here and now. And these little pieces of it land upon our lips and in our hearts and our minds, and they, they spill out into our communities and our families because it is the love of God pouring out from us. Waiting for the complete fulfillment of the day when his kingdom fully comes and every tear is wiped away and everything is made right is exceptionally difficult. But these little tastes of unmerited favor, of having our story united to him, and this unimaginable life that we can taste upon our lips, they motivate us to continue to submit our lives to God's word each day, just like Mary, so that we can say with her, I am your humble servant. Let it be to me according to your word as we wait. Every day, we get up and we say, let it be to me according to your word until the king himself comes and makes all things new. Amen? You know, Jesus gave us another sign to remind us, besides just the fruit of the spirits of his favor, um, to remind us of the unconventional story, and also uh, that his broken body and shed blood would bring us unmerited life. All of these things are contained here in this sign as well. 
The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after having blessed it, he broke it. He turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I ministering his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after he had blessed it and given thanks, he took the cup. And he said this to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the remission of the sins of many. Take and drink. This meal is instituted by Jesus himself. And it is a taste of the resurrection life. Older theologians would say that this table, um, you know, doesn't necessarily bring Christ back down, but it's actually Christ by the power of the Spirit lifting us up into the heavenly realms to when one day heaven and earth will be reunited again and we will feast together at his table. And this is just a foretaste, you know. Uh, it's, it's a little uh, cracker and a thimble of wine. Uh, but one day we will feast with the Lord, really and truly. And these little foretastes, even this little foretaste, this this almost poor substitute, is a life-giving confirmation that that the Lord is at work in the world. If his body was worth this much and his blood was worth this much, he will not fail to fulfill his promises to you. Come and taste these promises. But as a meal instituted by Jesus himself, uh, this meal is for those who have fully submitted their lives to God's word, who are baptized into his body and his blood, and who are members in good standing in a church that preaches the gospel. Uh, If this isn't true of you, uh, we don't want you to leave, um, but we want you to make use of the prayer in your bulletin. Uh, Come talk to myself or Kyle. Uh, My contact information is in the bulletin. We'd love uh, to tell you more about how to make this happen. Um, But we, we do believe that this is for those who have already been united to Jesus. And we would love to see you submit your life fully to Jesus' lordship. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle. We can go to these serving stations on my right and my left. Uh, We have a gluten-free option on my left, so if you require that, please go that way and just notify your server. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would transform these common elements to their spiritual use that we might taste and see God's favor towards us in Jesus' body and his blood. That we might be confirmed that even in our sufferings, we are characters of a greater story. And that we might rejoice at the small acts of resurrection life that we see on display even in this meal. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.